welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we ask three writers from the magazine to read their pieces out loud. I'm Natasha Froze, and here's what we have this week. Mary Wakefield on why we must resist Stonewall's gospel. Leo McKinstry on the worrying rise of apostrophe laws. And finally, Melanie McDonough on the lost art of letterheads. First up, Mary Wakefield. I think by now it's becoming horribly apparent to parents of every political persuasion that we can't sit out the culture wars. You might call yourself progressive, loathe the Tories, but still, the ideological tide is rising, and when it laps at your own child's feet, everything changes. It becomes impossible to ignore the fact that gender activism these days isn't about gay rights or even trans rights. It's not about being inclusive. It's about presenting utter nonsense as plain fact. A generation of children are being fed a distorted version of reality. In particular, they're told there's no such thing as biological sex, that there are no born males and females, and that they must somehow, on their own, discern their inner immutable sex identity. They're told that they can, and even should, change not just their pronouns, but their bodies to suit this identity, and that it's really no big deal to take drugs that make you infertile, or to have your breasts cut off, or to be castrated. This isn't just a fringe belief touted about by wackos in schools that somehow slipped under Ofsted's radar. This is the gospel according to Stonewall. And Stonewall runs workplace training schemes across the country. It advises hundreds of schools and universities and provides handy, ready-made educational packs for primary school teachers. No wonder more and more children every year are referred to gender clinics. For my own awakening to all this, I have to thank a 24-year-old called Kirin Medkoff head of trans inclusion at Stonewall. I wrote about Kirin in May and the emotional support dog he brought to the Alison Bailey trial. This week, I read the transcript of his evidence in full and began to fear for my own small son and for every young, pliable mind that tries to grapple with the madness and for Kirin and his friends. Bodies are not inherently male or female. They're just bodies, Kirin said during the trial. Biological sex is made up of a multitude of characteristics that change over a person's life cycle. For Kirin, it's self-evident that any person with a penis who says he's a girl should automatically be allowed access to any women-only spaces, even, say, a refuge for female rape victims. Because, as a born woman, wrongly assigned male because of his penis, the penis person has always had a right to enter, you see. Kirin said, I take issue with the words allowing access. It's about removing access, removing a certain section of women from services because they are trans. Kirin is in many ways a hero, and I mean that sincerely. Many gender activists are sneaky, putting into the public domain only things they think palatable to normies. This is the way of the cult. In being candid about his core beliefs, Kirin has done a service to me and to other parents who might otherwise assume that LGBTQ plus activism in the 21st century is a simple bid for equal rights. So, it's time for 21st century parents to organise. If only we had the bottle. In the 1990s, over-anxious middle-class mothers and fathers were known as helicopter parents, hovering constantly over their offspring. I think of the 2020s version as egg-and-spoon parents, We place our little eggs in their silver spoons and creep carefully towards some ever-receding finish line, clutching them tight as if the slightest jolt will crack them.
we're forever offering our children treats, anything to keep the peace. We're not on the face of it, equipped to do anything but instantly affirm any gender our progeny fancy adopting. I'll order new name tapes, darling. Just tell me how you spell it. But it could be that it's in the sensitive act of affirming their new gender that we egg and spoon parents are most likely to damage our kids. Some 80% of children who think they've been born in the wrong body, gender dysphoria, later change their minds. Desisting is what this is called in the trade, as opposed to persisting through to chemicals and cutting, as if desisters have suffered some failure of nerve. But if you instantly affirm your trans-curious child and change their name and their clothes and their name tapes, if you affect a social transition, don't you make it harder for them to quietly reverse ferret? Activists trumpet the fact that almost all youngsters who are prescribed puberty blockers go on to take hormones, the hormones which help them pass as the opposite sex. This proves, they say, that gender therapists are discerning. They're able to identify the real trans kids who would otherwise be at risk of suicide. Whether or not that suicide risk is as significant as Stonewall say is a matter for another day. But why, if there's no such thing as biological sex, does any child need to transition at all? That's the grand mystery at the heart of it all. Every religion needs one. The question I'd really like to ask is how anyone knows that puberty blockers themselves don't push a child into further dysphoria and into transitioning. The best-known blockers, GnRH agonists such as Lupron, Prostrap and Zolodex, all have nasty known side effects, depression, anxiety and confusion. There are chat forums online full of grown-ups medicated for endometriosis or prostate cancer who insist that GnRH agonists have ruined their lives. How would a confused kid know if they're anxious because they were born in the wrong body or because they're stuffed full of Zolodex? Puberty blockers simply buy you time to think, says the NHS's gender clinic at the Tavistock and Portman Foundation Trust. But puberty itself often helps gender dysphoria resolve. If you block puberty, don't you sometimes block recovery from gender dysphoria too? Maybe that's all to the good for those hard nuts who think the heteronormative world needs queering. Who cares about any individual children when there's a culture war to be won? Well, the parents do, I hope. Even the craven ones. In the end, it's up to us. That was Mary Wakefield. Next, Leo McKinstry. Two new measures aimed at toughening the justice system came into force last month. The first, known as Tony's Law, enables the courts to impose a life sentence on anyone who causes or allows the death of a child or vulnerable adult in their care, while the maximum term for cruelty that leads to serious physical harm has been raised from 10 to 14 years. The law's title is a tribute to Tony Hudgel, a remarkably determined eight-year-old boy who, when he was a baby, was so badly abused by his parents, Jodie Simpson and Tony Smith, that both his legs had to be amputated. Angry that these torturers were only sentenced to 10 years each, the family who adopted Tony led the campaign for longer punishments and partly due to Tony's heroism, they achieved their goal. Tony's law was accompanied by Harper's law, which imposes mandatory life sentences on the killers of frontline emergency workers. Named after PC Andrew Harper, who was killed by three thugs while he investigated a burglary in August 2019, 
This measure was the result of a powerful campaign by his widow Lizzie and much of the tabloid press. I know without hesitation that my husband would have been immensely proud of this achievement in his name, she said on the enactment of the law last week. There can be little dispute about the worthiness of these causes, but the measures reflect a growing fashion for new laws to be named after high-profile victims. Increasingly, legislation is treated as a personalised form of commemoration where the instinctive response to many tragic or emotive cases is not just to express sympathy, but to press for statutory change. This practice started in the USA, where it is sometimes called apostrophe law, and is now becoming ever more common here. After the killing of the much-loved South End MP Sir David Amos last October, there were calls to commemorate his life of service by the introduction of legislation to tackle online abuse of public figures. This proposed measure, known as David's Law, would end anonymity for users of social media and the internet, making it easier to identify the peddlers of vitriol. David's Law has yet to make any progress, and many campaigners are, have expressed alarm at its implications for free speech and the role of whistleblowers. But others are only too keen on this kind of online policing, so a crackdown against trolling is proposed by the supporters of Zach's Law, led by the mother of Zach Eagling, a boy with cerebral palsy, after he endured serial online abuse as he undertook a fundraising walk for the Epilepsy Society in his garden. Already on the statute book is Max and Kira's Law, under which consent for organ donations is presumed unless people have specifically opted out. The joint title is in honour of Max Johnson, a nine-year-old who in 2017 was saved by the heart of Kira Ball, also nine, after she died in a car crash. While admiring the sincerity and energy of campaigners, it is legitimate to feel concern about this pattern. After all, justice is meant to be rational and objective, yet the enthusiasm for heart-tugging nomenclature introduces a huge element of sentimentality into the legal system. It smacks of using the statute book as a type of grief counselling and trauma therapy. However honourable the motives behind them, many of these new laws are not necessary, but are a kind of gesture politics designed to send a message. Without new apostrophe laws, the courts can already give whole life terms to police or child killers. Nor do judges need a Scots law or a Damien's law, both measures advocated by the bereaved relatives of victims, to deal with knife offenders. The impulse to memorialise a loved one by legislative change often involves an extension of state bureaucracy and regulation. With its proposed limits on working hours and requirement to publish accident data, that spirit lies behind the calls for Rowan's Law, named after seven-year-old Rowan Fitzgerald from Coventry, who was killed in a bus crash in 2015. The family of Martin Hett, a victim of the 2017 Manchester bombing, is seeking the implementation of Martin's Law to impose a raft of new statutory duties in the provision of security at large venues, including training, risk assessments, checks and planning. Meanwhile, the parents of Charlotte Brown, killed in 2015 in the crash of a speedboat driven recklessly by its owner, are campaigning for Charlotte's Law to improve safety on waterways with drink drive limits, compulsory wearing of life jackets and speed restrictions. The emotions behind apostrophe laws might be understandable, but what makes this eagerness for legislative memorials so extraordinary is its naivety. 
It seems to be infused with the belief that more laws are the answer to society's ills. But legislation is no panacea. We're already drowning in laws, regulations, statutory instruments, guidelines and executive orders overseen by a sprawling network of agencies and authorities. In the field of crime, the real problem is not the absence of legislation, but the lack of moral confidence from the state to uphold existing laws and punish offenders. According to official figures, almost half of repeat knife offenders avoided jail last year, despite the introduction of a supposedly mandatory prison sentence for those caught in possession of a blade for the second time. Indeed, just 7% of all crimes in England end up being prosecuted, making a nonsense of the law. The same is true of the misguided theory that changes in the law will improve the performance of public institutions when it is a change in the culture that is needed. Legislation will not make any difference to outdated working practices, low productivity, poor management and the dom dominance of producer-led vested interests across the public sector. The vanity of parliamentarians is stoked by this resort to personalised laws when they can appear as allies of the bereaved and champions of compassion. One study in the USA found half of bills previously rejected by Congress were passed if the name of a victim were attached to them. Britain now appears to be heading down the same road. That was Leo McKinstry. And finally, Melanie McDonough. One of the pleasures of the letters from unhappy ministers to the Prime Minister last week though not presumably for the recipient, was the assortment of letterheads from Whitehall departments we saw in the papers. One was from Nadim Zahawi on Her Majesty's Treasury writing paper. It's a fair bet that most of Mr Zahawi's communications these days are by email or text or WhatsApp. But yet, when it came to calling for Boris Johnson to resign, nothing would do but a letter with the Treasury insignia to indicate that the writer was staying where he was. There are so few opportunities nowadays to show off a letterhead that they have become a special medium. In a charity shop the other day, I bought up some blank correspondence cards from a gentleman called Sir John Cecil Williams of Hampstead Heath, simply for the pleasure of the formal type and layout. You had the title and name, so even if the sender signed himself just John, you would know who it was. It's useful for those with rubbish signatures. Once, this was how the better off communicated. The working classes did so by normal postcard. Given that the recipient would receive the card on the day of posting, it was fabulously efficient. Naturally, I consulted dear Mary on this. She observed that almost all communications now are by email, and so today you need a letterhead, mainly because you are self-important or aware that what you have to say might need to be kept for posterity. That's Sahawi then. The more expensive letterheads are embossed, so you have the sensual pleasure of running your fingers over the raised lettering. A letter or correspondence cards with letterheads gives a sense of formality that has become quite thrilling. A letter from someone in Parliament is good, simply because it's on paper headed House of Commons or Lords with a portcullis. The other place where letterheads are still in use is gentlemen's clubs. Left to myself in the Athenaeum the other day, I had the double treat of writing on headed paper with a wonky dip pen and ink, which instantly raises your game when it comes to handwriting. My mother took a dim view of that sort of thing. Using someone else's letterhead was, she thought, impersonation, though she wasn't above it herself. Once she worked as a secretary for the Lord Chancellor's department. And to cut a long story short, my illegitimate father was having trouble getting proof of his birth from his natural grandfather, the postmaster in the village of Bellicanew. 
My mother sent him a letter using the Lord Chancellor's writing paper, asking him to cooperate sharpish, and you would not believe how quickly he did. Mary observes that 30 years ago you'd get your writing paper from Smithson, but today a personalised correspondence kit there starts at £195, so it really does denote status. The other problem is that young people don't know how to write letters and address envelopes. I had to train my teenage children how to lay out the address with room for a stamp, something the nuns did for me when I was six. A lost medium then. Tragic, really. That was Melanie McDonough. And that's it for this week. If you'd like to hear more stories like these, why not pick up a copy of our magazine? I'm Natasha Froze, and do join us again next week.